Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus. We're going to review the book of Titus this morning. This is the last morning in our study of this brief little letter, and we want to do that together this morning. Um, Let me begin by telling you about a guy named Stephen Thomas. He is a programmer in San Francisco, and he has two guesses left to figure out a password that's worth about $320 million dollars. The password will let him unlock a small hard drive known as Iron Key, which contains the private keys to a digital wallet that holds um, 7,002 Bitcoin. The problem is that years ago, Mr. Thomas lost the paper where he wrote down the password for his Iron Key, which gives users 10 guesses before it seizes up and encrypts its contents forever. He has since tried eight of his most commonly used passwords to no avail. Thomas said, I would just lay in bed and think about it. And then I would go to the computer with some new strategy and it wouldn't work and I would be desperate again. Bitcoin has made a lot of its holders very rich in a short time, the article says, Cryptocurrency's unusual nature has also meant that many people are locked out of their Bitcoin fortunes as a result of lost or forgotten keys. They've been forced to watch helpless as the price has risen and fallen sharply, unable to cash in on their digital wealth. Of the existing 18.5 million Bitcoin, around 20%, currently worth around $140 billion, appear to be lost or stranded in wallets. So what, what could be worse than that, right? To, uh, to forget your password is maddening enough, but when it's worth millions, hundreds of millions, what could be worse than that? How about forgetting what God has been saying to you? And you're, some of you are thinking, how could that be lo- worse than losing hundreds of millions of dollars? Because if you do... If you do forget what God has been saying to you, you forfeit the blessing of God on your life. Something that's worth far more in terms of joy than any any monetary fortune could ever be. Jesus had a lot to say about this. In John 13, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. A little later in the same chapter, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the flood came, and the winds blew against it and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In Luke chapter 8, He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So there's a whole lot that hangs on doing what Jesus teaches us, not just hearing. And so today it's very important as we walk back through the book of Titus that we take a remembering posture, right? A doing posture as we review the teaching from this little letter of Titus in these past months. Now, to do that today... To help us remember, 
Uh, we're going to hear read again throughout the next few minutes, chapter by chapter. Uh, the entire book of Titus will be read to you uh, by some of our readers. Along, and in between each chapter, I'll give you some prompts to remember the teaching that we did during, during the last several months. Um, but I want you to be thinking simply these kinds of things. What has God been saying to me? What has he been teaching me? What has he been asking of me? What is my takeaway from the book of Titus? And hopefully today uh, you'll see some, some clarity on that. But let me pray for us and then we'll listen to the first chapter of the book of Titus read and remember together what God has been teaching us through, through the first chapter of the book of Titus. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness, come to us now and give us ears to hear what your Spirit has been saying to the church. Um, help us remember what you've been saying to us here in this church about what it means to follow and love you more. So speak to us through your word. May your spirit bring it to remembrance and give us obedient hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God our Father, God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, 
all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word for us. So, so Paul's writing this little letter to Titus, his friend and longtime co-worker, not so much out of a concern for Titus as it is a concern for the churches that Titus is overseeing on the Isle of Crete. And if you remember, Crete is just off the coast of Greece. Um, the culture at Crete was shaped by their view of their pagan gods, especially Zeus, who was said to have been born there. Uh, the gods in, in their culture were once men who became gods. And Zeus supposedly was born on the Isle of Crete. Whitney Woolard describes it this way on the Bible Project blog. She says their mythology was so entrenched in Cretan culture that the churches in Paul's day were integrating their understanding of the Christian God with the prevailing views about the Greek gods, mainly Zeus. It's recorded that Zeus loved to seduce women by any means necessary, even by assuming godlike characteristics to get what he wanted. In a nutshell, she says Zeus was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. They took pride in his shady character and underhanded ways. And then she says, now you're starting to get a taste of what Paul was dealing with. Right? Paul was concerned about, you heard it all read, false teaching and false living that was creeping into the church as a result. Teaching that majored on minor things, that focused on disputable matters, and as a result was dividing the church. And as a result of the division, the church's light was being dimmed there on Crete because their unity was being threatened by these false teachers. Because the witness of the church depends upon her unity. That's why Jesus prayed this for us in John 17. He prayed that, that we may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so the remedy that Paul is prescribing to Titus for all of this Cretan chaos was for Titus to appoint godly leaders, elders, he calls them, in the churches on the island and these were to be men whose family life and moral character reflected the character of Jesus. Right? They were to be faithful to their wives. They were to be passing on their faith to their children. They were to be found resisting the, the vices of the day, arrogance and violence and greed and such. They were to be embracing the virtues of Jesus, hospitality, loving what's good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And you remember, as we walk through this list together, uh, when we taught it on Sunday morning, you were challenged to pray this list for our elders, that we would increasingly be becoming uh, this caliber of men. And, and is that part of your praying for our, are you praying for our elders? I hope you pray for the leaders of our church. We so need your prayers. But we also saw that this list of virtues 
is not just for leaders. They're for all of us who follow Jesus' way. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you remember, did God poke you with one trait from that list of traits to make a matter of prayerful pursuit in your own life? Was there a vice that you need to put off? Was there a virtue that you need to put on? We want to remember what God is saying to us through the book of Titus in chapter 1. Let's listen now to chapter 2 and remember again what he's been saying to us through chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's good word for us. So in chapter 2, as you just heard, Paul is writing to the family of God in their various stations and stages of life. He addresses older and younger men, older and younger women, even slaves. And he tells them how to ornament the doctrine of God our Savior with their lives. And by that he means that we should put on display by our lives the beauty of our faith for the world to see. Three times... In chapter 2, you just heard read, Paul's great concern about how our lives reflect the good news about Jesus, right? In verse 5, he says it to the younger women. He writes to them that the word of God may not be reviled. He writes in verse 8 to Titus himself, and he says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse 10, to slaves and really to the whole church, he says, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And that verse is where that ornamenting idea comes from. Like a jewel in just the right setting, a picture in the ideal frame, so ought the gospel be in the life of a Christian. All of these serve to enhance the beauty of the thing itself. Now, 
as he walked through these different stages of life, to the older men, he had a number of traits that he mentioned, but he ended with one that we talked about called steadfastness, that we would finish well and not get sidelined when the church needs us most. To the, what we called mentor women, right? Um, he urged relationships with younger women so that you can share with them how Christ has helped you and what he has taught you. To the younger women, he prioritized life in the home as an area of priority ministry for you. To the young men, remember he just urged one thing, young men just have to do one thing, self-control, okay? Which is really not self-control, it's God-control as we yield our lives to him. To bond servants and to workers of all kinds, he urges being good workers, pleasing to their overseers. For even a, sla even a slave can represent Christ to his or her master. Surely modern day workers can as well. And then if you remember that service, if you were here, we had five North Wakers from each of these categories pray over us. That was the best part of the sermon that day. And I preached the sermon, so. Um, and then Noah taught us the back end of chapter 2, where we saw that all these lists, the things were to be and were not to be, are intended to put on display in our lives the grace of God that Jesus put on display in his life. And we can only do that when we depend on the grace of God to help us. Remember Noah, Noah saying that Jesus is training us to say no to ungodliness and yes to this life that he's calling us to? And he asked us straight up, who is training us? Who has our ear? Whom are we depending upon to live this life? So what was God saying to you in chapter 2 about how you in your stage of life, where you're living right now, how should you better put on display the grace of God by the grace of God in chapter 2? Now let's remember chapter 3 together as we hear it read to us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect court courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves 
to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's good word for us. So Paul starts chapter 3, and he calls us to submission to authority. He has the governing authorities in mind there. And to speech free from slander and evil and marked by gentleness and courtesy towards all. His concern is still for our witness, right? That by our lives, we would be what Jesus intended us to be in Matthew 5 when he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We talked about how when those two ideas bump up against each other, submission to authority and gentle speech, Even our political speech needs to represent Jesus. Paul moved on and he reminded us that though we once lived like Cretans, the whole Trinity engaged to rescue us from that life and give us a new life marked by good works. God the Father saved us by sending His Son who poured out the Holy Spirit on us. The whole trinity was at work in your salvation. But there's someone, Paul said, who was not at work in your salvation. Look at verse 5 with me. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we saw clearly, this is just last week, that we are saved by God's mercy. We are washed by the Spirit, justified by Jesus, who is the grace of God for us. Everybody's work matters, just not ours in our salvation, right? This is God's work. Remember Tim Chester's whiteboard exercise where he imagined God deciding whether to save us with a list of pros and cons. And on the con side were things like this. We're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. And then there was that long list on the pro side, nothing. 
There's no reason why God should save us. But then God writes across the page, my kindness, my love, my mercy. You see, it's all of grace. Our salvation is an undeserved favor because of the cross work of Jesus on our behalf. The great demonstration of the love of God, even for us, while we're still sinners, while we're still a mess. In the closing verses of chapter 3, we we really didn't get a chance to walk through together. But Paul, you heard it read, Paul returns to earlier themes. Um, He warns against anyone who makes something central other than the good news about Jesus. He says they're divisive. And they're to be warned once, warned twice, and if they persist in these divisive matters, have nothing to do with them, he said. You know, dividing the church is that important, right? Don't don't divide the church, Paul's saying. And then he has some team logistics and some greetings that he gives to people that he knows and loves. Um, Church for Paul is always a team sport, right? Different churches, different leaders are partnering together um, and they're, they're giving themselves to the good work of caring for one another and sending missionaries You have the rare mention of the good lawyer in the end of Titus. But then Paul closes with this little phrase. This is how he closes the book, same way he started it. Grace be with you all. And uh, I was so encouraged by North Waker Jet Wren's thoughts on how this letter ended with this simple little wish for grace. Her post is in your email, and it's on our social media. It's It's a worthy read. Uh, This afternoon, when you're just relaxing a little bit, go hunt that down and read Jet's article on the grace of God. Let me just share a little bit of it with you. Grace be with you all. She says, wait a minute. All Paul wants to say after two and a half chapters of guidelines is a brief mention of greetings and grace? Come on, Paul. How about a little more encouragement? How about a bit of a pep talk? You can do it. Don't be overwhelmed. It's going to be all right. I believe in you, Titus. I love you to death, Cretans. Why? Why is he content to simply end on grace? Grace, she says. Grace, God's unmerited favor, unmerited love, unmerited kindness and mercy. Grace, our unmerited rescue from hell. Grace, our unmerited place in heaven. Every unmerited breath, grace. It is grace that we hold God's word in our hands. It is grace when we laugh. It is grace that we can cry. It is grace when we sing. It is grace to sink into sleep after a terrible day at work. We are given unmerited mercy when we face pain with strength. We experience unmerited love when a conflict ends in forgiveness. Not a moment of this life do we deserve, but God steps in in grace. She says, I think Paul was content to end so abruptly because he believed that grace was everything. It was his very best wish for them. I think in this short sentence, grace be with you all, Paul was speaking volumes. This, my dear friends, this gift is more than you can comprehend. It is your desperate need. I know that if God gives you grace, you will be receivers of all that is good. You'll see past this brutal world. You'll be forever safe. You'll be full to the brim with joy and peace and hope. I am not wishing something small for you. Grace is all, she says. 
She says the, the, path, the, path, excuse me, the path grace took to reach God's people was anything but easy. It was as difficult as separating a father from his son. It was as hard as eight-inch nails through hands and feet. It was as grievous as 12 friends running away. It was as painful as thorns and whips and a spear. It is no simple thing to wish this grace upon a friend. Prayer for God's grace. Pray for God's grace and you pray for the greatest love and the greatest mercy and the greatest power the world has ever known. And then she says, I pray this over you now, Northway. I pray that you would see the grace in every breath and that you would believe in the grace shimmering in every moment. I pray that you would live wholly dependent on grace. I pray for grace to pursue the, previous, the precious lists of Titus. Grace to keep your faith. Grace to avoid folly. Grace to be of service. Grace to move beyond what hurts you. And grace to be changed. She says, this is no small prayer at all. And so now let's take just a few moments and let's bow before God and remember what he's been saying to us by his grace through the book of Titus. And I'll guide us in prayer. So would you bow with me? So, Lord, we ask for more grace. We dare to ask for more grace. That we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. And so, Lord, guide us now as we think back through your book. So I would ask you this morning, what is God saying to you about the marks of a leader in your life? What has he been saying to you about the way you are to pray for our leaders? I urge you to remember what God has been saying to you. What has God been saying to you about the witness of your life in your stage of life, whether young or old, at home or at work? What is he saying to you about clinging to Jesus and the grace he brings for you to live this life? Now take a moment, those of you who follow Jesus and know him, and just praise God and give him thanks for saving you, though you were a mess. The whole glorious trinity stepped in and worked to rescue you by God's good grace alone. Give him thanks.
Now would you ask God to put his grace on display in your life and in the lives of all of North Wake? That we would, to our neighbors and our co-workers and our families, be a city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. Pray and ask God that for us, for your life and for us all.